0: visit ElkinsConsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. Listeners, you are truly in for a treat when you listen to this episode of Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, featuring my dear friend, Brooke Oslam Errol. We met through the caring leadership community and Heather Younger, who has introduced me to many extraordinary human beings through that community. And um, if you haven't yet, I highly recommend you read the book, The Art of Caring Leadership, join the community, take the assessment to find out where you can be a more caring leader. I wasn't surprised by my results at all, (laughs) where I could use some improvement and where I'm already strong. And um, I'm just so excited to have Brooke on this episode. So, Brooke, thank you so much for joining me
1: course. Thank you for having me so excited to have this conversation with you. Love what you're doing in the world. So love to be part of that.
0: Well, thank you. It has been a long time coming. We've been talking mm-hmm. for over a year about having this opportunity to have this recording. I was really hoping at some point that we could do it in person, but that just hasn't Happened yet. So we're just going to make do with Zoom. (laughs)
1: Yes, but we'll do it one day. I know for sure. Yes. Yes. And we will feel that
0: hug down to our
1: toes. I know we will. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, Brooke, you know
0: how I start on my podcast. And I know you have something in your mind. So, for our listeners, Brooke is going to share something about her that most people might not know, not really available easily on the LinkedIn profile or her bio. Um, So, are you ready?
1: Yes, I am. So thank you for that question. Um, of course, people who are close to me know it really well, but I don't think it's very easy to see, like you said, on LinkedIn, but it defines a lot of things about me. So I just want to share that I was born in Istanbul, a uh, 11, 12 million populated city at the time. Now it's 17 million, actually, since I left Istanbul. But it's just like growing up as a city girl being in two continents at the same time because Istanbul is a beautiful city to, to visit and it is on both continents so if it, just to go to work I would go from Asia to Europe from Europe to Asia every single day which is a very interesting fact of the way I started my life so I just want to say that about me I'm Turkish American I have both citizenships but a lot of things come from my background and from my original country, for sure.
0: Of course, absolutely. I, I would be surprised if it didn't color the way that you see the world, because wherever we grew up is going to color our identity and, and help us see things from a different perspective, especially if we leave. Yes. And I, yes. I think that's where people get kind of tied up in themselves as they stay in the same place for too long and then they don't get to explore and learn more
1: about their identity by leaving. So true. And it happens even here. Right. I'm sure you I think you are one of the ones who lived in different parts of the United States. That's even different experience because every place has its own vibe, a little bit of its own culture. And when you change this life from one country to another to the really to the opposite side of the world, oh my God, everything is so different. But I did go out go to high school, American, middle school, high school, college, and then work for IBM. So I did know a lot of things as I was growing up about the American culture, but living is a whole different story, obviously, yeah.
0: Yes, definitely. <laughs> and I, I noticed that there are a lot of similarities despite the differences as well. Um, for instance, I remember wandering through a uh, part of Paris and thinking I could be in any city in the world, based on the signs and the way people were dressed and the, the traffic, I could be anywhere in the world. But there I was in Paris, which is one of my favorite cities. Have you noticed Ooh, that as well?
1: Yes, I. that's why I think people like you, from what I know, and people around us, are. I feel like I always felt the same way about being a global citizen. Yes, of course, I will never ignore my heritage, my original country, that I love the United States. That's why I chose to come here to live. But I am a big traveler too. And I think one of the pivotal moments in my life was to go to a youth camp. In Italy, when I was 20 years old, and I was with people from 66 countries around the same age. But that was a life-changing experience because just coming back to your point, then I understood, oh, my God, we're so similar. And I love that experience. And I'm sure it's not a coincidence that I ended up being in California because I wanted to live where there is people from all around the world. And now I have friends from, I don't know, even here. I have a lot of Turkish friends, obviously. I have American friends, but I have friends from New Zealand, from Ireland, from Sweden, and like New Zealand, everywhere, because that's the life that I wanted to live. So I love the similarities we have. But all the things that I think that makes us different is also so special too. I think we have to celebrate both, especially in the world that we live in now. Oh my God, I wish... Everybody had my experience. It would be a different world. I I'm, I'm really believe that. Mm-hmm. It would have been a different world if everybody had to experience what I was able to experience at 20. That's mm-hmm. my blessing, really.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, I truly believe that every human should have to do food service for a year, mm-hmm. either in a kitchen or front end of the restaurant being a waiter or something like that. And every person... Should be required to do a study abroad experience, either in high school or college. Yes. Just to open their eyes and be exposed to things. Wow. Yeah. So, because I'm, uh, yeah. uh I'm just so fascinated by this idea of you being 20
1: and traveling Uh to Italy. First of all, what part of Italy were you in? I was in the like northwestern part of it in a very little town called Bagnone but it was close to the Pisa. Pisa, I don't know how you say it in (laughs) Turkey. So it's not like, okay, slanted uh, tower that makes it so famous, but we were in a little, little, little town. And when you grow up in Turkey, one thing that you don't get to feel so much in the United States is that we're surrounded by countries like Greece, Bulgaria, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Syria. We are always in kind of a political conversation, and then you feel all the things that makes us so different. Then the first day I go to Italy, my first friends turn out to be, of course, two of them are Greek. And then they would always say, oh, Greeks never get along with Turks." Oh my God, we are so much the same. Then you understand immediately that that's all politics that separates people. But mm-hmm. people around the world are just the same. We all want the same thing. So just that alone was an eye opener before I even met all the other people from other countries. But yeah, I mean, it was really a life-changing experience. That's why I, I speak about that a lot. And it was because Mm -hmm. of the Lions Club. Lions Club has this youth exchange program and I've never been a, like a part of Lions Club. It was our neighbor. You said like, do you want to be part of this program? And I was always the adventurous want to travel type of type of person anyways I said sure but I mean they do such a big service to the world just by that program alone among all the other things they do really and how long was that one so it was like a month in the camp, but then you are able, you were able to stay with a family, Italian family. So I stayed for another two weeks, I think, with them because they want people to speak to each other. They had young kids like me who wanted mm-hmm. to talk with each other but most italians at the time didn't speak really well any kind of english so i had to learn some italian they had to learn some english but it was so much fun and of course you use the universal language the sign language and you right. understand each other it, and you get immersed into the culture too oh my mm-hmm. god from the food to the livelihood that they have there it's so Mediterranean, like my own country too so it was an amazing experience really it's hard to tell in a few words you know or a few seconds or minutes that's a whole new book of on its own yes
0: Yeah. so when you think about arriving in this small town coming mm-hmm. from istanbul multi-millions of people in istanbul mm-hmm. i mean i can imagine but what do you remember most? What is the the image that pops into your
1: head of seeing this little tiny Italian yes. village? It's just like it's it's so much is familiar because Mediterranean countries are the same. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is so different. Our Turkish little towns look the same and feel the same. But just to be there with the people made the biggest difference because I love traveling and seeing different places, but it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm in shock, what a different place, but mostly it's the people. And I always remember the bar that we went every night because it was so close to where we stayed and just the wonderful people that I'm still in touch with, at least four or five of them still to this day. Wow. Yes, I know. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I, I know that
0: based on this whole conversation that this had a huge impact on your work. Um, and I know just a little bit about your um, about what you do and that transition that you took, leaving the corporate world and in a very successful role, doing really interesting things to fulfill your need to share what you knew about what the power of purpose. And work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'll ask you to kind of describe what that is a little bit better than the way that I just sure. described it. But if you could maybe think about one inter- interaction from this camp in your twenties, I'm, I'm thinking immediately of that first introduction to the the Greek young adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that now, what you when you look back at that situation, that incident, that experience. You can see how it
1: contributed to
0: what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, I think so. in like there's so many layers to what I do, but of course, it's all comes down to having people do something that they're excited about, having they use their similarities, but also make sure that they use their talents and their gifts that they're bringing to this world. because even if we have similarities in what we do, we always have a unique way of expressing that in the world, right? So even those experiences with them, first of all, to understand that we are so much the same and it was all about political stuff that separated us, made me feel and believe in the humanity and then make sure that people are bringing their best selves forth and being their unique themselves is where probably I started because when I was working In the corporate space, I wasn't sure if I'm using my gifts and talents. I didn't have a good inventory of what I'm good at either, but it just something felt wrong or missing. Although on paper, I had one of the best jobs you can ever get in Istanbul, Turkey, because I had the best education, which I was privileged to have. But then it wasn't even a big brainer, and it was not so hard to find the best job because I came from the best college there. But still, everything on paper looked the same, but I always remember that day, and that's where I always, in my talks and my speeches, in my book, I tell that moment where I have to sit down and think, okay, I do this work, it looks great, people admire me, but there's that thing missing, and that's when the purpose question came for the first time for me, saying, okay, what you do is good okay you work for this one of these big fortune 50 companies you make good money but how does what you do contribute to others that was my biggest question that came with the exact purpose word and I didn't know what my purpose was but I knew it wasn't selling technology I knew for sure what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life but I didn't know what I want to do with my life but I still couldn't stay there and left and my inner journey to figure out, like I was saying, what are my gifts? What am I, what is so naturally easy for me? Where do I get my excitement, my passion, my flow from led me to do my own inner work? Then when I got a good sense of it, I felt like, okay, why don't we do this as we grow up? Why don't they teach this even in school so that we do select the best major for us, for example, or read the right books for us or get even better in our strengths? I know you and I believe in the finder assessment and we know that if we work on our strengths, we get even better and better at that. If we work on our weaknesses, yes, we can and we should, but it doesn't get you so far because you don't have that in you. So then I started working on that. And then I wanted to help others do the same. Okay, okay. And then I didn't know at the time when I worked on these questions, it wasn't common to leave the corporate space so fast. So everybody was looking at, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? You make so much good money and you're going to leave this company. But I knew it wasn't enough for me. For me, money never was the first thing. I always wanted to more be fulfilled, get up in the morning with excitement. And then I realized when my first business I started in 2003, Your Best Life, I wanted them, everybody who's interested to have the same inner journey. Find your gifts, your talents, your dreams, your values, and tie that to something that matters to you, which I call purpose. And I found that, oh my God, there's so many people in the corporate space like me. I didn't know at the time. Now we all know. Of course, but at the time mm-hmm. in 2003, when I started first, I said, Oh my God, these people are so amazing and they're so miserable at work. It is, it is not right at all. So that's how it all started. Then came to the purposeful business because I realized people are feeling suffering mostly at work because the work environment doesn't let them be themselves, doesn't let them use their gifts, doesn't let them use their passion. That's mm. when I got to the organizational side of things. I know I answered your question the longest way possible, <laughs> but it it's kind of also tells you what I'm trying to do, really tie it with the individuals and organizations because they when they meet, that's where miracles happen. When people find passion and purpose in the work they do, and when the companies find those people, amazing things happen every single day.
0: Yeah. Well, and what I'm hearing is that that experience at twenty, understanding how similar we are in, in what we want from our lives and from the relationships in our lives, to the the differences in how we approach those needs and desires. Um, and and not just not just valuing those differences and and not just appreciating those differences, but embracing them for the greater good they bring to the, the tapestry of our yes. global community. Yes. And what I'm also hearing is that um, it, it seems like you recognize that as miserable as people were, it wasn't because necessarily they weren't doing meaningful work. It was because of the, the work environment. And I Ooh. love that you said that because I find that to be the critical difference between the, the failed self-help industry failed. I mean, if anything else was an industry that failed the way the self-help industry has failed since the 80s, um, it wouldn't exist anymore because we're at an all-time high of depression and anxiety. Clearly, the whole self-help industry isn't isn't helping anybody except the people who are getting wealthy from it and what i'm hearing you say is that when you understand your strengths and your values and you can do work that's aligned in that in a workplace you don't need the self-help stuff because you you understand that about yourself so how do you get organizations to embrace this to say we actually want a really healthy workforce we want people to want to be here like how do you How do you get them to embrace that?
1: Two things about like what you said. I do believe some of the self-help things are useful still. It depends on who you found on your journey because I did get a lot of help for my own growth, I think. So I don't want to say 100% of them is bad because I have really used some really good self-book discovery sessions some books and some coaching, some mentoring. I think I was maybe lucky to find the right one. So it did help me a lot in my own journey. That was the only way I could have helped others, right? Um, I had the shared experience with these people who felt miserable at work. But coming to the point that you were making is yes, what i feel like our purpose is now people make it so big in their minds that they're almost afraid or now that we br- like did so much purpose washing it comes to a horrible place unfortunately which makes me sad mm-hmm. and angry at the same time But what it really means is like you find your gifts, your values, your dreams, the type of life you want to live. And if you want to contribute to one more living thing, it could be helping animals, right? It could be saving the planet. It could be doing like more plantation. It just could be even like something that's not a living thing, but like helping maybe uh, protect the architectures of the history. So whatever means something to you, what matters to you, and one more thing, one more living thing is what makes up your purpose. It's something you use your gifts to for something that matters to you. But Mm -hmm. workplaces usually did not look at people that way. They assume people don't want to work hard, and that's so wrong. People want to contribute and work hard, but you don't let them be themselves, bring their professional size to work only, not their emotions. That was the time I started working in the corporate mm-hmm. space, for sure. Nothing that I brought up from home or emotions were welcomed at all. So we constrained people to come to work, and then we assumed they were lazy. Then we made them do very meaning- meaningless stuff too. Lots of bureaucratic work. Oh my God, so much administrative processes that we have embraced. and We embrace that is not useful to anyone, including the business itself. But the mindset, unfortunately, is still there. So that's the breaking point that we came to right now in the last 10 years, especially that we are trying to understand people. So coming to your question, maybe the easiest answer is like, Let leaders and organizations understand what people really, really want. It's not the external stuff. Yes, the external office and the nice coffee shop that you have in the workplace, which now we work remote doesn't even mean uh, too much at all. But all those external stuff increases your job satisfaction. I would make a distinction between that and job fulfillment. Fulfillment comes from intrinsic things. Mm-hmm. And now it's not a like a big thing to discover. There's so many books and research about it, like Daniel Pink's book, for example. People find their motivation from purpose, autonomy, and uh, mastery. Three things, all intrinsic things, not external stuff. Does a good salary help? Of course. Does good benefits help? Of course. But it's not the main thing, especially now with the new generations. You have to understand them because 75% of them will be the new generation 2025, three more years. How can you not try to understand what they want and what humans want in general? It's not only what Mm -hmm. they want. Our generation somehow grew up with like some security and safety ideas about work and work to be only a means to an end to get a paycheck. But people like me, Generation X started questioning them. The new generations, of course, question it. So that's all they want, need to do. Understand human beings better, please.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and then once you understand them, actually make changes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it, one yes. thing that's one thing yes. Heather Younger talks about a lot is it's great to get the feel for what's going on in your office and for your workplace. But you have to take action. You can't just send out the survey and expect people to pour their hearts out to you and then not do anything with that information.
1: That's even worse. I always say that because I do surveys. So don't do it if you're not going to do it. Take any action. That's even worse, right? Exactly.
0: I, yeah. yep. I just had that conversation with a client that wanted an employee survey to go out for the strategic planning mm-hmm. sessions we were doing together. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm happy to do it. You have to promise me that you're going to acknowledge yes. that you received this information and that you're going to, over the course of time, either implement or explain why you're not implementing some of these recommendations. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah so um i i love this for so many reasons but one of the big ones is that um i know you and i are similar in that we we never fit into that mold of um, <laughs> that desire for stability and, and staying in one place and doing a job and making the money and having that kind of a, a, a career the way that other people anticipate it and that we you and i have always kind of bucked the trend in terms of wanting more from our work and wanting meaning in our work. And um, it's funny that now my, the way that I've worked, the way I've had my career is really similar to what people are describing from Gen Z and millennials, which I'm Mm -hmm. I'm way beyond that age range. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And I know I'm not the only one in my age range that went through this I, one of my dear friends calls it a gypsy career because mm-hmm. I moved around so much. Because I was always looking for the next thing that was going to bring meaning in my work, and it's interesting that we associate this mentality with a generation, as opposed to humanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I mm-hmm. I truly believe that all of us have this desire, but most of us don't allow it. We ignore it, we dismiss it, we deny it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what leads to so much greed and -hmm. and dissatisfaction in -hmm. our world and particularly in the workplace. Mm -hmm.
1: I totally agree. It's not a generational thing, but some generations accepted and did not question it as much as we did or the new generations do. But I'm also looking at the history because it tells a lot. So, if when you first start the factory age, industrial age at the beginning, like people were told to this is going to be transactional. You're always been in agriculture, but like you didn't have stability. You didn't know how much money you're going to make. We'll make you enough money every week. We're gonna, You're going to give us your time and effort. We're going to give you the money. So for a long time, at least people did feel like there is some safety and security in the job place. And if I'm allowing myself to give my time, then I'm going to get something in return. So it went on and on for a long time. And there were a lot of innovations. I'm not definitely, I'm giving a lot of credit to the industrial age mindset too. But what it states, what it stated, like I was telling you, was like people are only gonna do work for the money only that was the mindset mm-hmm. and then came the 1980s when things started to really fall apart because people did started to lose that safety feeling because the massive layoffs started then and when the massive layoffs started and it continued and continued even when i was working at that big company they were hiring they started hiring people at the end of my career there like who are contractors who didn't have my benefits? Who did exactly what I did, paid much less? They weren't even ex- like invited to the big, extravagant, wonderful meetings we had with lots of, like I don't know, too many perks, which they didn't get a chance to even play around with it. And we were sitting next to each other. That. Bothered me so much, although I was getting all the privileged parts of it, somebody next to me didn't get that. So people started seeing that, being contractors instead of employees, massive layoffs. So what do you do then? You say, okay, starting your business is so risky, but probably not anymore. Because staying at a job is very risky because next day in the morning, they could give me the pink slip and I don't have anything to do anymore, zero control over my life. So started to feel that. And when I'm growing up, my son is watching me and people like me, and they're seeing some of their parents are getting laid off, even if they followed the right formula. Good Mm -hmm. education, good grades, good job, worked hard, even PhD degrees getting laid off. They even lost their homes in the 2008 crisis. So what yeah. are they thinking? They are not saying, oh, let me go and join a big company and stay loyal down and mm-hmm. retire from that. That looks like an amazing formula. Of course they don't say that. So I think for those generations that didn't question it, I don't judge them either because they made a good living. They did their purpose outside of the work. They had a good, safe retirement. None of the people have that anymore. Almost none. Very small percentage. Then, of Mm -hmm. course, everything started to change. But I really looking at the history of work, really after 1980s and 90s, everything started to break. The whole system tried to break. And that's why, of course, then the young ones are saying, oh, you're so entitled. You should not not change jobs like this. No, they should. They should look for what they want because they Mm -hmm. have seen. It wasn't the companies, it wasn't the people, it was the companies who started the disloyalty, not the Mm -hmm. people.
0: So it changed
1: everything. And now with the pandemic, of course, you're going to question, is this a good job for me? Is this really working out for me? I Mm -hmm. can't put my children as a priority. This doesn't work for me. Of course, people did that and they should. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, when only there's a bad thing, We start to think about our lives and do reflections usually, but I'm glad we had the chance. That's the silver lining of -hmm. the pandemic, I think. There's so much sorrow and sadness. We lost 1 million people in this country alone. That's a horrible number. So, of course, I can never say enough about how much sadness and sorrow is there, but this is one silver lining that I see, at least from this pandemic. So...
0: I think so many times it takes tragedy for us to wake up. Yes, yes. I don't know. I mean, I know. I, for me, I, I try to be awake as much as yes. possible. I don't wait me for too. tragedy to wake me up and make me want to be present and be a mother yes. and be a spouse and and yep. love on my dog. <laughs> which yeah. Because I know that tomorrow is not guaranteed to me. And so I make the most of every moment. But it is, I have seen it in so many others. That it, they just go through the motions. They're in this zombie place in their heads until tragedy strikes and they they make a change. Yes. And even those families who didn't have significant grief or trauma or tragedy in the last two or three years, um, even those families are seeing the the tragedy of our planet, the the global community suffering, and saying, "Well, wait a minute. I don't want that life. What what am I doing?" Exactly. And it makes me so relieved. Mm-hmm. And um I it's it, I hear what you're saying about calling it a silver lining. To me, it I'm just so relieved to see mm-hmm. people recalibrating mm-hmm. and taking inventory and saying, mm-hmm. I actually do want to spend more time with my yes. kids.
1: Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you and I, I think we're just maybe a different kind. Like we want to be more proactive than reactive. So like I said, my life was wonderful on paper, but I didn't feel that way. So instead of waiting for the tragedy to happen, I want that to happen. And it wasn't the easiest thing. I left my job. I left my country. I like everything was so difficult at the beginning when I came here, but I had to do it. Like I, but I think we, we are also listening to ourselves a lot a lot Mm -hmm. of people stop listening to themselves as they grow up because you want to fit in and that's such Mm -hmm. a human need to belong but then you lose yourself you really do Mm -hmm. and now more generational i mean it's not generational but at least these generations are doing a lot more of that much younger in life and i'm Mm -hmm. glad they do that really yeah, me too.
0: Me too. Yeah. I talk to my boys a lot. They are almost 21 and 23 and mm-hmm. we talk about how are you going to avoid future regret? What are you going to yes. do today so that in a year or 5 years or 10 years you don't look back and think, "Oh, I regret not doing this or
1: uh-huh. regret yeah. not
0: changing that." Uh-huh. Um,
1: uh-huh. So
0: I, I would like to come back because I think the key here for to me about your work is this idea of while we can approach this, and I, I've used the, the term self-help, I used mm-hmm. that before as an industry, all these books and money that went into it that obviously wasn't satisfying for most people, um, but I understand the approach. We both take the approach from the coaching perspective of individuals, but what I love about your work that I would like to hear a little bit more about and then come full circle is how you talk to organizations to approach it from that side. Because individuals, we can do a lot on our own, but organizations serve a major purpose and have a big role because I don't believe we have to serve our purpose in one location. I think that once we understand our purpose, we can do it from almost anywhere we sit. Exactly. That's about the organization yes. that's about the agency understanding that about individuals. So how do you approach it from that perspective?
1: True. so very true like and it's like we can have different purpose at different stages of life too. like mm-hmm. just like what we went through last week, for example, those parents who had this horrific thing happening to their children 10 years ago for Sandy Hook for example, they found a full purpose all by that. So sometimes it finds you and your whole life is now dedicated to like mm-hmm. stop some like crazy things happening, right? So sometimes I always say like purpose is something you discover in yourself mm-hmm. or the, sometimes it finds you and you can use it like you said at work and anywhere else. If your purpose is to Uplift others, you can do it to anyone at work that you meet, right? Or in real life, Mm -hmm. in personal life, with your children, everybody. So sometimes it's that general. Sometimes it's a lot more specific and you can find a job aligned with that. But coming to your real question, coming to the business space, I have experienced many things over the 20 years when I'm doing this deep-rooted purpose work. And I always say deep-purpose root work because some do it so for bad reasons, unfortunately, for only for marketing purposes, it really starts with the leader of the company. It is not a grassroots thing you can do, unfortunately. I wish we could. But if everybody, the only grassroots part of it is like, if everybody says, I want to work for some company who does good in the world, not only profits, it's like beyond profit, then that is forcing companies not even thinking about to do the right thing. So that's the grassroots part of it. But for a company to change, it has to come from the top part. And when I say it has to come, not a command control way of, oh, this is our purpose from now on, believe it or leave it. Not that way. To come up with the purpose of a company, I always do the collective intelligence exercise because we have to use the collective wisdom of the company. Most of the cases, the best purpose comes out from the people in the front lines, not from the top people. Unless it's a founder like me or you, we start a company because we have a purpose already and then we invite people to work with us or do work with us, right? But if it's a company who never thought of it, but they want to see and do it in the right way, it's not a top-down command control thing. So the first thing I do is always go to the leaders uh, or they come to me with some pain points, which might have nothing to do with purpose. It might be engagement very high turnover, but I always will go back to ask them, okay, why does your organization exist in the first place? What are you stand for besides making profit? What is it about you that is beyond profit? If they have a good answer to that, we just start from there. If they don't, we really start from the purpose of the company, answering the question, why does this organization exist beyond making profit? And then the values are it's so crucial because how you get there is through the values, which values you're going to live by and not by just putting the five values like one after another. What does it mean for this company? Every one of them. What is a good example that you see in the company that shows the alignment with the value? Yes, Because it doesn't sink in. Exactly. It doesn't sink in. For example, integrity, oh my God, integrity is so overused. It doesn't mean anything until you show an example. So integrity should be even like just something that everybody should believe in anyways. But when you come up with your values, again, use the collective wisdom of your people. You do it together. We always do the sessions together with Mm -hmm. people in the company. And then the vision, without knowing where you want to go, how are you making the decisions of the company? So those three are so important as a foundation and it drives the strategy. It drives your talent practices. It drives how you hire. It drives how you retain your people. That's why I just can't even wrap round around going into a company and they don't have these three things very clear, not only at the top level. Everybody is understanding what they mean and they live it every day before you could go to the business strategy or the tactical stuff or the tra- ta- tactical things you do for the people and culture department, because that is the driving force. Like just one little example, for example, Southwest has affordable traveling for people to get connected to things that matters to them the most. I know it's not exactly what I say, but something similar. And when all the airlines started charging for luggage, they said, no, all the shareholders pushed them so hard. You have to charge for luggage because every other airline does. You're leaving 300 million uh, money on the table every year. And they forced them, they forced them, they said, no, we're going to adhere to our purpose. Our purpose is affordable traveling. And they left the 300 million, but I know they made so much more money. Because fans like me are always going to travel with Southwest because they did the right thing. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, when you stick and align your decisions with your purpose, your values, your vision, you make more money at the end. But it shouldn't be the reason to bring purpose. Because Mm -hmm. now, now they see the numbers attached to the purpose, the vision, the values. They want to do it for that reason. No. It is because humans want to do meaningful work every day, not only weekends, not only during the retirement. Just Mm -hmm. tap into people's potential. It is the intrinsic yearning that we have, which we are not maybe even conscious of. But we want to wake up for a good reason, right? We want to wake up for our children, our sons to be good human beings. That's one of our biggest purpose as moms, at least one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So, but if you tap it into that in the companies, which is very underutilized, oh my God, those companies that I'm following and interviewing Uh are doing amazing stuff. They are amazing. And pandemic, even if it caused some economic issues for them too, they stayed so intact because mm-hmm. they live that culture. They know why they stand up for it is not only about profit. So, of course, I can go on, as you can tell. So you have to stop me now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it because it's it's a very specific guide. And I think I think people make it far too complicated. It's not that complicated. As we said at the very beginning yes. of the conversation, we have so much in common. Yes. Our desire for meaningful yes. work is all over the world. Yes. And yes, we would like, we, we must have income. We must get food on our tables. Yes. We want meaningful work. So yes. I, I don't know why we make it so complicated. And oh, so businesses, oh, I, know. I mean, the, the largest companies could rally behind this idea if only leadership
1: understood it yes at such a simple yes. simple level yes such yes simple level. yes and it's their belief system so one of the first things that i do is like really ask them about their beliefs if first of all do they believe workplace can be better more human do they mm-hmm. think people are really willing to work if they're they're given the right circumstances mm-hmm. i mean all that belief system they have really determines what they, it's possible for the company. It's really, it's almost like the company's progress is very much aligned with the consciousness level and the belief system of the leaders, really. Mm-hmm. We can't yeah. go past that, unfortunately. Right. So but, if you believe so. people are generally lazy
0: and they just yeah. do the minimum effort to get a job done, then you're never going to change any culture in that place. Yeah. Exactly. I think about this great book by Marilyn Del delfis who who wrote uh, "Everybody Wants to Love Their Job." Yes, and it's kind of the Bible yes. for this yes. thought. So and true! Such yes. a good book. And I remember yes. reading the very first chapter and thinking, "Oh my gosh." there's mm-hmm.
1: such simplicity in this. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Complicated. I know. Yes. But that mindset from the really from the Friedman days, from that mm-hmm. mindset we started in this age still unfortunately right. lives. And it's so hard obviously for some people to change that. Mm-hmm. It's a paradigm reset really. And it you really know what's is. interesting now that you say that too, one of
0: the things that I've been Working on as I work with coaching clients in the strengths finder area, particularly with teams, is mm-hmm. these managers, people who become supervisors, and mm-hmm. they know what bad supervision looks like. Yes. They've experienced it. Everyone has had a bad boss, a, a microaggression, micromanaging, uh, you, this is how you do it kind of boss. Everyone's had one. And sometimes they become that same boss. Yes. I would say, of the time, no, maybe more, they become the boss that they hated, because it's all they knew. It's all they know. And until we can stop that cycle and say, I know you didn't like it when your boss did that to you. Why are you doing this to the next yeah. person?
1: So true. And I have the exact same conversation with every project that I have, with every client that I have mm-hmm. too. And I think part of it, I mean, from what I've seen when I had the deeper conversations, there's always some kind of fear behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Either if they act that way, either the company is not going to enjoy this new kind of leadership right. or support mm-hmm. them, right? Or they will just look so softy, too caring. And one of my friends that I think you also probably know, it says like, they even told me at work, like, don't be like a woman. You're too soft. You bring too much emotion. Really? Look, think about like the kind of the mindset we have. And I think there's always fear behind it. And coaches like you and me and so many people we know, if we can dig in and dig in and dig in to understand the why behind the why, I think Mm -hmm. there's always some of that that lays there. It's so hard to get through that. And until you get, and if you have good examples in the company who allow you to be yourself, then it gets mm-hmm. better and easier, I guess.
0: Exactly, yeah. you have to see it in action. Yes, and yes. Um, I think about that a lot in terms of modeling behavior yes. as as a manager as a boss. I, I have had Definitely. lots of supervisory positions, and um, now I have a couple of part time employees that I work mm-hmm. with. And mm-hmm. we are transitioning away from an hour hourly salary, hourly wage, to here are the, the outcomes that we need in the next four weeks. This is what I need weekly. And I don't care how much time it takes you. This is how much I'm paying you. If it mm-hmm. takes you two hours instead of four, great. great. I'm not paying you for your time. I'm paying yes. you for your expertise. I'm paying you for your ambition and yes. care. Yes. And it's because they believe in the business. They believe in what we're doing and they want to contribute. And I just yeah. think, okay, we're experimenting with this. Yes. yes. It's,
1: it's yeah, inspiring. It is. It really is. And I'm like a big believer in purpose, but I know that it only sticks if you put your people first. If you're Absolutely. not the people first person, if you don't really care authentically, it doesn't stick. And that's what many companies are trying to do. Oh, this is such a trendy thing. Let me do it. But they don't put their people first. And I'm also very much into the self-management space too. thank God to some of my partners in my other company, but like self-managed people who can make their own decisions have more ownership in the business too. Mm -hmm. So they feel they own it. And In my in the corporate world, one of my jobs was like that. They allowed me to be myself fully, hundred percent, with my ups and downs, with my ideas, decisions. Nothing was off the charts. Like everything was like off the like was possible for me to share with them. Oh my god, the ideas that I came with, came up with, Mm -hmm. the time I was able to spend with them, and it was the job that I made the least amount of money, the least. But I loved it, and I loved my Mondays. And that's one of my goals, too. People should love their Mondays, not Fridays. Mm-hmm. And when I first started working, that was so weird to me, that everybody <laughs> was always looking forward to their Fridays. I mean, your life is there. It's Monday ticking by. Oh I, God, know. I know. I, yeah. I have
0: to yeah. tell you, when um, in, in my, my last two jobs before I went exclusively – with Elkins Consulting and started building my business and not working the other jobs. Mm-hmm. I remember this moment where I was like, Oh, I just can't wait till Friday. It was, a, I think a Tuesday. And I thought, Holy shit, Sarah, yes. you're living for the weekend. That's not yes, how life is yes, supposed to be. Yes, what yes. can you do? I didn't have the luxury of just leaving my job at that time. I was bringing in the health insurance for my family. I was working for a company. Sure. Government. sure. And I really, I sat down with myself, what can you do that makes it so that your work week is just as important to you in the weekdays? Yes. What are you going to absorb and look forward to and experience during the work week so that you're not just living for the weekend? Because that's that's five out yes. of
1: seven days yes. that you're thinking yes. about the other two days. I know. That's A insane that I know. It yeah. is. And yeah, a couple and of up. the
0: strategies were yeah. like family dinners. Um, yes. I would talk to the boys every Monday or Tuesday, and we would talk about what dinners we were going to look forward to that week. Who's yes. going to cook? And one of the yes. boys would cook sometimes, mm-hmm. and I would make sure Teen. we have the right ingredients. And mm-hmm. from the time they were pre-teens, they were 10, mm-hmm. 11, 12 years old, they'd take turns making a dinner every Perfect. week. So we mm-hmm. would talk about our family dinners. We would talk about going out somewhere, um, bob and i are both musicians so every tuesday there was a a rehearsal for the band and so there was always something beyond my work and i tried really hard during my day to make a goal of making at least one person who left my office smile that they left my office smiling and relieved at some help that i was able to assist them or something Every day I had that goal so that I could walk away thinking, okay, I I served some purpose today. Even though those weren't the conscious words. Yes, of course. It was simply a strategy to, to make my life more meaningful, but I didn't know that at the time.
1: Exactly. And that's like, that was my first reaction when I came to the workplace. I think I was too naive. I think I shared that on LinkedIn just recently too. Like, this is work, really? You wait for the weekends and the unpromised, like retirement? But at the same time like I left my job with nothing too. People think that I'm one of those lucky ones who have a lot of savings. I had a lot of people that will support me. Both my husband and left our jobs really good jobs with nothing. And that's not something I recommend. That's not what I'm saying. Don't take me wrong because it is the hardest thing to do. I even watched, I think I saw today, even Adam Grant said like, do a side hustle first that to put too much pressure on you to do your dream, which is so true. So I, that's not what I Mm -hmm. recommend, but that also means like you can't wait for all the circumstances to be the best before you do that because your life goes so fast and yes, we struggled. We did, but we and we put so much debt on our credit cards because we didn't know how else to provide for ourselves or for our businesses. But like sometimes you do the riskiest things too, just mm-hmm. to be not not to have your to soul living. crushed. Yes, yeah, and no soul crushing. There's so yes. much souls that are amazing that are crushed because of the system we created but since Mm -hmm. we created this as human beings we can recreate it right that's what i believe in for sure
0: absolutely yeah
1: brooke this has been so lovely i love how we came
0: back full circle to talk Mm -hmm. about how we recognize those differences among us and the similarities what makes us love and appreciate each other Yes, This has been such a treat. So for our listeners, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I will have the the information she's going to share in a moment on the blog post associated with the podcast. Brooke, can you tell our audience um, who is your ideal person or team to work with and how do they reach
1: you? Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for asking that and all this time we spent together. I can't speak for another 24 hours, probably. (laughs) But yeah, my ideal, ideal client is the founders who really want to start a business that does good in the world, not only make profit, but they don't know the maybe the whole setup, the structure, the framework, the loose framework. I don't believe in big structures, framework that they can start with the good foundation. So if they need the help, I love to help them out, but also small to medium businesses who are hearing this purpose thing, but not sure if it is for them. That's why I have an entry program now without making a huge investment of time. They spend one hour with me. I tell them what the the benefits are to start the purpose, vision, and values for your company. And then they make their decisions. This is great for us or not, without getting into a 6 months in engagement with me. And I think the easiest places to find me is LinkedIn, for sure. And then maybe Purposeful Business is my business, so you can also contact me there too. But thank you for allowing me to share that with your audience too, Sarah. So it's been great. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And the name of your book? It's like I have one book that I wrote on my own, which is Create a Life You Love. And I always say you love <laughs> with a big because it says <laughs> As opposed to somebody letters. else's version. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I have a co-author, I have four or five co-authored books, but one was just which is important for businesses, is from hierarchy to high performance. And I have amazing co-authors there. And my chapter is about starting purposeful businesses and changing businesses to be more purposeful. We have to make sure that businesses do good in the world. We have too many world problems, really. Mm -hmm. It can't be only about profit anymore. I'm a big believer on that.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well thank you so much. I am looking forward to our listeners having the opportunity to hear what you believe about purpose and maybe to start thinking about those questions for themselves.
1: Yes, and thank you for being so purposeful and doing amazing work in the world too, Sarah. And the storytelling is such a big part of it. We have to be able to tell our stories in a good way, and it does make a huge impact. So thanks for bringing so many voices in your podcast too. Thank you.
0: Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell them will is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you.